Right, here we go with the second episode of my podcast pre-pro and uh, this time I've got a car racing driver with me, also a neighbour. It's Brendan Hartley. Welcome Brendan, thanks for being on the show. Cheers mate. So first up we had Bradley Smith in the first episode and that was pretty easy because um, I knew Bradley's career for the past 15 years. Uh, we met five years ago so we're going to have to really go back before we even met because essentially that's what this show is about. It's um, delving into how you started out and how the hell you ended up becoming uh, a Formula One driver in the end. You started out from, uh, was it Adelaide in Australia? You were born? <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Which part of Australia are you from? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, a little town in New Zealand called Palmerston North. Um, but it's funny, mate. I feel like I've probably, I feel like I've probably told you a fair amount already because we spend that many hours together on the bike. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess we haven't really, we don't speak about, you know, how we got to, to where we are now, but, um, well, I yeah. know that the part I didn't know was that you, uh, were living in England before you moved here to Monaco in, uh, 2014 when I first met you. Um, but like we were just speaking before uh, we hit the record button, I was saying, you you quiz me, I'm, oh, what are we going to speak about? Where do we begin? Oh, I'm so yeah. nervous, mate, but just so you know. But yeah, yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just uh, advising you, say, yeah, let's speak about whenever you know you, you move from uh, New Zealand to look at in, uh, in England to race in Europe. And you're like, no, no, I based myself in Europe first. So there you go. I didn't know that. Uh, that's the, the first time I'd heard that. So um, let's talk about whenever you first uh, left New Zealand, because at what age were you when you shipped over to Europe? 15. Um, my first trip to Europe was yeah end end of t- end of um, I guess yeah I don't know what it was now but anyway I was fifteen years old and I missed my end of school exams travelled to Portugal to do a young driver search for Red Bull yeah, um, yeah kind of put everything on the line and looking back now as a fifteen year old I can't believe my my parents allowed me to jump on a plane alone. Um, I, I'm just trying to remember who I went with now. I think I went with um, a guy named Barry Tomlinson, who who's still an advisor of mine, still a good friend. Um, so so yeah, I had I had some some guidance, but I could barely point to Europe on the map, let alone, you know, let alone knowing, yeah, yeah, let alone being ready to to jump on a plane and and uh, go and explore the world. But yeah, looking back, it it seems crazy that it, I was that young, and uh, you know, two months later, I I moved to Europe and and lived. In a funny little town called Oschersleben in, in East Germany, by myself in a little industrial area. Um, That's crazy. At fifteen, yeah. Bradley yeah. Smith said the same thing in the first episode. He happened to be fifteen whenever he started in world championship, and he'd been motocrossing a couple of years before. So not only did he change sport, he was pretty damn good at it right away. And then he was offered a world championship contract at fifteen. And how the hell do you explain that to your mum? Yeah, and mum that's meant to be studying my GCSE exams in school and thinking about a real job but uh, yeah this is going to work out so you did something uh, even more extreme than Bradley Bradley was still able to, to go home um, attend school live with his parents uh, he was racing in Spanish championship then when he did go to Grand Prix that was that little bit tougher but you weren't going home between races You, whenever you ship up and move from down under that's a hell of a commitment yeah it was um and I think I look back when I look at back my my career and how I got to finally become pro. You know, a few a few years ago. I guess it depends when you when you when you class um, being a pro. But I think that fact that 
our Sansepedians or New Zealanders, Australians, we've travelled so far and it, it's such a big commitment. I think we get a lot more opportunities for that. I think people look at it, um, yeah, they, they know how committed we are, that we've actually left friends, school, family, put it all on the line to, to travel across the other side of the world. And I think that's that's definitely played to my advantage over the years. But at the same time, it, it was not easy though, that first year. I did, I did travel back home, um, I think two times during the year. Which, which is not fun being on a plane for, for 30 hours or so. But I, I remember those, those first years being very homesick. Not, I guess not realizing at the time how homesick I was, but looking back, flying, in, flying into New Zealand um, at the end of each year, I remember the, the butterflies I got in my stomach and, and all these weird emotions that I never thought I would have. Um, you know, growing up in New Zealand, it, you're quite isolated from the rest of the world so I was kind of thrown into it and then yeah coming back home every year I would realize how much I missed it um, and it's a very different feeling now because I've made my life over here and I go back home for a holiday and I enjoy it but definitely those those first two years were not straightforward but at the same time I learned so much in a short short, short space of time and I think I learned so many valuable lessons about cultures and different teams and, and yeah I mean not to go into the details but I think a lot more than what I would have learned staying at school to be perfectly honest with you yeah it was the real world and you were it's surreal, flung yeah. into it I don't know your age and you weren't quite ready for it but uh, yeah it's yeah, sink uh, or swim in that respect, sink or swim. Yeah. that's what I was just thinking yeah. uh, I never thought of that aspect of uh, races from Australia New Zealand um, I only thought of the negative aspect that God, that's, uh, that's tough having to leave home at that age and relocate because you could actually go and then within a month be like, no, I want to go home. I want my mummy. <laughs> I'm sure that must happen with some guys. So I'd always understood that part. I never thought of the fact that then manufacturers and teams would look at you uh, in that sense and realize, yeah, this kid's serious. He really does mean business because whenever I went my first year in World Championship, I'm Irish and I'm hard to read. So team managers, how would they know if I really cared or not? Because I keep everything inside. So once the visor went down, it was clear that it was a competitor, but off track. I had uh, team managers at the time try and quiz me and shake me and uh, and try and get out of me. Look, do you really want to do this or is somebody making you do it? Because I was just a closed book. So uh, yeah, for you that was pretty clear because uh, the answer. Yeah, didn't already have to came. explain. Yeah, it was. It you was didn't quite have to explain clear, nothing. No. The fact that you'd yeah. already opt and you'd made that commitment. If you didn't want, and my to, parents to let me make that commitment, which was you know even a bigger thing. You know, to to let your fifteen year old son travel across the other side of the world with. You know, and at that time, I mean, okay, there was a bit of Skype here and there, but it's, you know, it's it's not wasn't as easy to communicate it as as it is today either. So it was, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I'm not not that old, but there there was there was Skype, but it's not as straightforward as it is today. Yeah. It's it's changed in the last ten years because of our phones with uh, FaceTime. Exactly, you, yeah. it's pretty easy. Whereas Skype was a big thing you had to almost email a time that you're both going to be on your computer yeah and trying yeah, to explain can I call you? and trying to explain how to my parents no, to get my parents to use skype was complicated <laughs> enough so yeah yeah the, i remember those uh conversations and then uh, and what time is it with you yeah, <laughs> that was yeah, the yeah. One. so you you always had to try and uh, get a time whereas now actually pretty straightforward with new zealand because it's almost 12 hours difference so when you're waking up you know they're going to sleep which is you know hard for others to comprehend but you know we're, we're sitting here in in, uh, in Monaco and, and New Zealand is effectively under our feet you know that's sorry New Zealand is effectively under our feet you know that's how far away it is you know you, Antarctica is closer you know if, if you want to go further than New Zealand you've got to go to the moon it's, it's really that far away you, you, yeah. you can't go further has your uh, mum especially ever said to you uh, 
in recent years of how that was for her because I'm sure she probably wouldn't have wanted to tell you at the time but has she ever said to you look you know when you left I cried missed my boy did she ever uh, admit that to you I'm sure she she had those moments but maybe didn't want to let you know let you worry yeah it's not not really I have to say um one day she might yeah <laughs> whenever you finally uh, come home and stay for more than a month I mean, she's come. She came to visit uh, myself and, and Sarah, my wife, uh, and, and come and you know see where we've set up our life now in Monaco. Uh, she, she she came to visit us last year, which which was amazing to, to finally show you know where we've set up our life. You know the friends and you know you, you actually met her. Um, but yeah, looking you know going back to, to then, I, when I do look at it, I, f- I find it strange that in a way they were so open to it, to letting it happen, and at the time there was no question. I think. I'm not saying things have changed that much in 10 years, but I think a lot of other parents, it would have been a really big decision um, for for their kid to be shipped off to the side of the other side of the world. But in my situation, it was something that I dreamt about all my life. I started racing a go kart when I was when I was already five. My my, my father raced before me. My my brother raced before me as well. Um, and the opportunity that I had as a, you know a development driver for Formula One or part of their junior team it seemed so big that there was never even really a discussion or a question. It was just like, well, I've got this opportunity. See you later. You know, like there was, there was no real mothering or babying from my parents. And I think they were like that with me my whole life. When I, when I look back and you know, I was out on the streets, you know, riding my bike and, you know, causing trouble with my friends. Like, you know, it, it, I, I think they put a lot of trust in me, which also gave me responsibility. And I think in the long run that, that was a good thing. And I definitely grew up a lot by, being you know put in that situation and, and having to learn and don't get me wrong I had to, I had help from teams and um, you know the, the teams kind of took care of me a little bit but I was very much on my own and and I think it was probably the best thing that could happen to me in, in a lot of ways yeah. that's a pretty cool style of parenting isn't it because uh, rather than being model coddled to uh, just release you into the open world let you make your own mistakes and uh, as a phrase uh, for your kids is better than telling them just let them experience it let yeah. them make them mistakes yeah. and uh, that's um, what you had the opportunity to do but that must have been tough for your parents to let you go off at that age and uh, it's much more accessible now there's no doubt about that 10 years got more or 15 years yeah, later you're probably right it probably was and if they were sitting here now they could probably you know they'd be able to tell you but at the time I didn't see that it was tough for them you know there was yeah it was good I, I think they it, didn't work we, all, we all saw it as this incredible opportunity that well you know it, I, I grew up telling everyone I was going to be a Formula 1 driver you know, and looking back, it was the most ridiculous thing to say. You know, I come from a little, small town in New Zealand, not a lot of family money. You know, we did everything ourselves. I was there after school building the engines. But then for all of a sudden to be put in a position where it could become a reality was, was just so big to even even question. And, and you know, like I said, looking back, it was it was crazy to even be dreaming about that. But it can't, you know, without being cliche, it shows you, you know, you, you, can, you can make it happen if with a bit of luck and the right people and, and the right attitude, yeah. Well, every single driver on the Formula One grid, any world championship in general, did start out with the dream, didn't they? Yep. Uh, okay, not everybody gets to realise that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you have to really just bite the bullet and go for it. And yours is on a much bigger scale than what um, Bradley or I experienced. So I don't that's... think that's fair. No, I don't think that's fair. Well, you know, going from uh, I think New when... Zealand... Ah, okay, from, that, from New Zealand. I, mean, I thought on. you meaning, you know, Formula One versus MotoGP or motorbikes. I think between the two sports, I think we we all, like as, as, a, as a single-seater driver, we look at motorbike riders and, and are in absolute awe and, and, you know, don't understand how that's possible. And 
and I think there's a lot of respect coming the other side as well. And you know, we've had these funny conversations before where I say I can't believe you know how you're not you know you can just basically jump off the bike. I know you, you've you've had a brake failure before, and, and you're saying you're happy you could jump off the bike, and you couldn't imagine being strapped in the car. Where for me it's the exact opposite feeling. I feel safer inside the car, and it's um. I guess that's what you you grow up with a bit, but yeah, I, I, I've diverted a bit, but it, it is funny how we, we see things quite differently. And... Yeah, on that subject, when I first moved to, to Monaco at the end of 2012, I met a few racing car drivers, and because I'd always been surrounded by fellow motorbike riders, my two brothers, uh, and uh, a ton of friends that I was racing against, I never realised simple things, that whenever we started the year with, say, um, Shaw, I would give me five helmets to begin the year with, um, you didn't know how many you were going to need for the year because we crash our kit whenever we come off we actually damage our gloves or boots and all the rest and then when I met um, some car racing drivers when I first came here and then realised that oh yeah you get three helmets at the start of the year it's not going to get scratched you know we get so much kit that's damaged we almost don't know what to do with crashed leathers crashed gloved crashed uh, boots crashed helmets whereas uh, you guys uh, <laughs> if it gets smelly then it's done but for us it usually gets torn to pieces <laughs> from being a roll no, through a gravel trap so it crazy. it's just a simple little thing that it, it took me how long and just for the record I was having one helmet per, per year at that time so they, they were very oh, minging by the end of the year <laughs> uh, it, it was quite funny making the transition to Formula 1 because I went from having one or you know I was up to kind of two or three helmets in, in, in the LMP1 phase of Porsche endurance racing and then going to Formula 1 I all of a sudden had 12 helmets per year so there was a, a big difference from kind of the junior categories to, to, to say the that's Full amazing. professional, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were they were pretty smelly by the end of the year, but <laughs> only stone chips, you know. There's nothing like what you guys are going through. So well, uh, carry forward then to whenever you first started racing in in Europe. Then uh, this is brand new info to me. Then whenever you uh, were living in in Germany, and was that when you were racing in the Formula Renault? Formula Renault two liter, yeah. So I was racing with a German team, and they were based um, at a circuit called Oschersleben, yeah. um, which. You know, I'm careful what I'm saying because I don't want to mock the place, but it's not, you know, it's not the nicest place in the world. And um, I was with another driver. I said I was living alone and I had my own room, but we were in this little industrial area where we had our own room each, and there was there was two other drivers living there at the time, and with very little to do. I mean, my my teammate was also a similar age to me, uh, so we couldn't drive, we couldn't rent a car. Yeah. Um, we bought push bikes and we'd hop on the train to the closest town, and which was called Magdeburg or we'd hop on a train to Berlin and just take our bikes and cause a bit of havoc. But we, we, we really were quite limited in, in, what, in what we could do in this, this tiny little town in, in East Germany. Um, I couldn't speak German, and uh, most of the people in the town couldn't speak English. In fairness, them, they were very friendly and, and welcoming. Um, probably one of my, my regrets, though, is I didn't, I didn't make a bigger effort to learn German. I can understand a little bit now, but I, I kind of wish I had of made more of an effort to actually learn the language um, how many years were you based there though? just just the one um, and in fairness to me I did travel back and forth a lot to New Zealand well a couple of times to New Zealand and we had so many races that we, we were travelling a lot too um, but then okay, I, did, I did live in Austria the next year where they also speak German and yeah it's, it's actually really poor form of me that I can't speak <laughs> a second language um, but I speak English which is a good excuse <laughs> but uh, if you were a kid there that that's an age that a lot of your friends back home would have been starting to you know, delve into having a sneaky beer and all the rest. You were in Germany. What were you doing in October? Uh, we did have a few sneaky beers. Oktoberfest? Um, which was funny. So, I mean, I mean, at one point, I guess I was 16. 
months. Had I just turned 16? Okay, so the, yeah, when I was living there, I was 16. That was a big shock for me. You could buy a beer at 16 years old oh, in, in Germany and in Austria. So that was also a weird feeling, having that responsibility of actually being allowed to buy beer. And, and your parents Zealand. weren't there to, to stop no, you? No, I didn't have parents. And, 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 and I'm actually quite proud of how I guess I handled that, that whole phase of my life because I know plenty of other people have gone off the rails. Um, but in the same token, I had some really good support. Like I had, um, to, you know, something we haven't discussed actually, but for me to actually get to where I was before this Red Bull contract, um, I had uh, shareholders. So I had... Um, a very big supporter of mine who was effectively like a manager at the time, Peter Johnson, he set up a shareholding system. So people invested in me. So I had all the, the money that I used to live in Europe and, and to start my racing career um, in New Zealand actually came from shareholders. It didn't come from my parents, which is, which is actually quite unusual for a racing driver, especially in single-seaters. You know, generally, you need a lot of family money. And I'm, I don't say anything bad against... The drivers that have got a lot of family money it just wasn't the case for me but i had a lot of supporters um i guess where i was going to with that was the money was very much trickle fed to me you know like every an allowance yeah i mean every second week i was calling pj um and and you know asking okay i'm pretty low on the budget now and i mean this is all new for me i never i've never had to buy food in my life I mean you know I was 15 I was living at home so, so I got very good at cooking pasta I guess well, that's what you're going to ask no well I was thinking that again the kids at school that were being taught home economics you were doing it yeah I, I was living it yeah, yeah I was living it like I was all of a sudden yeah watching the bank accounts and yeah although I didn't really have an income I, I had this money from shareholders which you know I'm actually paying them back now still you know but, but without them I, I, I never would have had the opportunity but yeah I was I was living I was living what they were, were learning at school and yeah, cooking classes. I mean, I got very good at cooking, uh, you know, spaghetti bolognese and I was pretty limited, but um, I'm a lot better now. But yeah, all, the, all those experiences, I think I look back in a really positive way, even if those, that first year particularly was, was tough. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was, it was a tough year and I didn't actually perform very well either. And, and looking back, that it, it was simply because I wasn't very happy either. You know, it was a lot of new things for me and... It wasn't the right environment, and, and you know hindsight's always it's always great. And without that experience, knowing what, what was going to make me happy or having the right hobbies, I mean, I was really thrown into it without without the real support. I, well, I mean, I had great support back at home, but not firsthand, you know, there. Yeah, but you didn't have a, a choice. It was either stay at home or go and uh, live in Germany and race. It wasn't like yeah, I could um, race somewhere else. It wasn't like a one or the other. No, it was pretty straightforward. You're going there, and that's it. If you want to be a racing driver and bit the bullet, and and you went. But you won pretty quickly. Was it your second year? You already you won the, a title in Europe. Yeah. So the first year didn't go that well. I probably was a bit lost in a lot of areas. And then the second year, I, I shifted teams um, to a Spanish team uh, from from Escadi or the, the the bus country, and I moved to this really cool town in, in Austria called Fuschelamsee. It's actually where Red Bull's yeah. based. So I spent you, a bit of time there at the, the training center when I was with Red Bull ten years ago. So it's a that's a nicer place. You've got the lake there. Yeah, and it, it was a much it was a much better environment. There were other drivers living there. I was training at the Red Bull training facility or fitness facilities in, in uh, Talgau, which is just down the road. I had a little scooter that I borrowed off a hotel there. So I had, you know, means of, of transport. Um, it was by lake. It's actually where they 
filmed a lot of the, the sound of music for the people that are familiar with that yeah. which probably none of the list, listeners are but um i mean it, it was it was a nice place outdoors small town which which i like and yeah i had good people around me good team around me and then all of a sudden you know i really put, i won the first race of the year and i won the european championship and it was it was really a big turnaround from from the year before and, and i think that that taught me a lot actually about um, getting my head in the right place and and uh, being in a better environment where I'm happy and and you know started to develop some some of my hobbies which caught, you know kept me happy and I guess all those things as an athlete that you start discovering along your journey you know you can't you can't know all these things straight away you know that that's why you know, there's no athlete out there in any sport that's had a perfect record it just doesn't happen you have to you have to figure it out along the way right you have to find what makes you tick what um, yeah and I think that that was a big lesson for me and and that was a that was a good time yeah. Yeah, I like to say that a uh, happy rider's a fast rider, yep. and that's the same uh, for for most sports. Um, like you said, there isn't uh, a manual out there that says uh, living this way, uh, do these sports. This will keep you happy because everybody's different. different. Yeah, so you have to different. experience what makes you happy, and that was the key for you then. So the first year was tough, but you were uh, sharp enough to to realize if I'm going to make this work. And actually, I've probably oversold that up at that at that point in my career. I still didn't know what made me happy and, and after that I had some pretty tough years too you know so it's but that wasn't career and that's, that was actually that point in your life yeah you didn't know exactly. what would make you happy so yeah. that's that's yeah. the interesting part so you're still learning about yourself as a, as a person and then you're having to try and learn about yourself as a as a racer as yeah. well what makes you happy in both aspects so I think um, you got to go through that experience and it's such a critical age where we're at because we're teenagers so some there's a bit going on in the hormones as well, isn't there? There's a yeah. bit going on there. Yeah, so you're changing uh, yourself, and it's that age where your parents, uh, they go from being your best mate to almost some kids then hate their parents because puberty's just struck. So it's at that age where that's why some kids can uh, go off the rails, and that's all it takes. One bad year, and that's it. Uh, career can be over, so yep. you have to keep things on track because you, whenever you're 15, 16, 17, 18, we're just numbers in this game. There's so many aspiring riders, drivers, yeah. trying to um, break through that uh, if you show any element of weakness or you know, the f- maybe you aren't just the complete package, then it'll be next because yep. there's going to be the next kid coming along. So um, That has happened a couple of times in my career already. So, you know, you've, and you've, you've got to move on, look at the next opportunity and, and, and keep grinding, right? But yeah, like you say, it can be one bad year, one bad race even, and, and, and things can completely turn the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, after you were living in uh, Fushan Sea, um, you moved to, to England after that. That was the next step then? Because that's the part that I know where you were living in England, where uh, your now wife, Sarah, then uh, she moved from... Uh, Adelaide, Australia. I mean, <laughs> Sorry, I should give her a mention. We were actually doing the long distance thing, uh, you know, while I was living in, in Austria. So we, we met in New Zealand uh, at a go kart track of all places. So her brother was doing a bit of racing, and she herself did a bit of go kart racing. She's pretty handy behind the wheel. Um, but yeah, we met in New Zealand, and, and we we did the long distance thing, you know, as as as, as young fellows, we didn't really know what that meant and what, how that was going to pan out. Um, but she she uh, was working in a restaurant and saved up her money for a year to, to afford the flight to come uh, to, to the UK. So when I moved to the UK the, the next year, which was 2008, um, she came partway into the year and yeah, we haven't moved back. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, and so it's well, what I should say is she's been a part of the journey ever since and, and a big part of it, to be honest, especially in the later years. Um, you know, she's she's become a part of the team, so so to speak, and and 
you know, every team I go to, uh, you know, they, they kind of see that we're coming as a bit of a package. You know, she's not there all the time, but they know that she's dealing with a lot of things in the background. She She's the one communicating with the team on all the organization stuff, all the stuff that I don't need cluttering my mind. So she, she kind of gets how it all works now, and she's she's very much a part of the team and, and part of the success that, that we've, we've had together. Yeah, that's it. I never regret Mark. He's a great woman. And yep. I think so same for you, mate. Oh, yeah. I think we've been together, Pip and I, around the same uh, length of time as you guys, 13 years ago. Almost 14 years ago I met Pip, so... Yeah, Sarah will know exactly the date, but I, know, <laughs> I think it's about 14 years or so. Well, we can try and edit that bit out, because yes. <laughs> Sarah won't like She that. will listen. You're about to be like, yeah, it was August 13th, it was uh, a rainy uh, autumn day. She knows I'm useless <laughs> with numbers and dates, so it's fine. Yeah, so you guys uh, were still... You were still a teenager then? Um, yeah, 18, I guess. Yeah. And you were living in England, and so you'd grown up in a, a great climate in New Zealand, where you could go outdoors and do sport. What was it like then moving to the UK, where you get four seasons in a day? Because you were living in Milton Keynes. Milton Keynes. So I was living there because um, I was still part of the Red Bull junior team. So I started uh, spending more time on the the Red Bull Formula One simulator and started being a part of that development process and I also was ra- I was also racing the uh, the British Formula 3 championship but re- regarding climate I mean you, you haven't we did invite you to the wedding by the way but you didn't come to New Zealand so that's why you you, you yeah. didn't make the wedding which is why you don't know about the New Zealand climate it's <laughs> a long way but I'm we, sorry. we do um, that's alright we, we do actually get a lot of rain so you know people kind of people that haven't been there sometimes think of it uh, like Australia and, and you know sunny every day some parts can be you know that, that kind of climate but especially where i grew up you know there's a lot of wind a lot of rain that's why it's so beautiful and green and you know we have alps where it's snowing so you, you can't really categorize the exact weather in new zealand but I, um i actually like the uk and you know a lot of people give it a hard time for the weather um but uh, very soon after moving to the uk I, I got into my mountain biking which was probably one of the best things i could do because you know I, I really found a, a hobby that i was passionate about and I used to love going and riding my bike when it was muddy and wet and horrible and, and yeah, I, I, it also it also made you appreciate the good days. You know, when it was sunny in the UK, it, it felt incredible when the grass was you know crisp and green and um, yeah, I, I I don't look back at that in, in a bad light in terms of weather. And, and I spent seven years there, which I guess you're probably going to come to, but that was a big chunk of my life at the time. When when you when you think uh, even now, I mean. I mean, bit of quick maths it's, it's still a big percent you know wow that really is because uh, I didn't realise it was it's a quarter of my life I spent wow. living in the UK yeah so it, in a way when we left I mean it, it, it was also hard to leave because it felt almost like home at the time um, and yeah and, and the culture was quite similar as well I think that that was a good thing for me even though I loved Austria um, being in, in the UK I think the culture was a lot closer to, to being in New Zealand and, and I generally got on pretty well with the English and I like the humour and yeah I, I like I like England and still to this day I have a lot of friends there and, and try and spend a bit of time in London when I can so then let's look at that period then from 2007 to 2014 was uh, whenever you first moved to Monaco then recent career wise because we've been talking about uh, the personal stuff and that that was pretty interesting because that that's uh that was tough having to move uh, Germany Austria and then you finally find somewhere where you're going to base yourself for for seven years. I'd say it was nice and refreshing having um somewhere where they actually spoke your native tongue as well. So moving to England and you could go yeah. to the cafe order what you wanted for lunch without having to that um language barrier. 
Yeah, that although I did, I do remember going to Liverpool and having the same problem <laughs> with the language barrier, or Ireland, so to speak. Um, actually, I remember the first year I the first year I came over to Europe, uh, just talking about language. Um, I went to, we had a Red Bull, um, you know, dr- driver fitness camp, and there was twenty one drivers at the time, and coming from New Zealand, half the words I spoke were slang, <laughs> and I didn't, I had no idea that it was slang. You know, I thought they were common you know i thought everyone was speaking the same lingo that I, that I was speaking and basically nobody could understand a word i said and then there was one irish driver um and uh, i remember sitting i was like yeah okay irish driver i'm gonna go sit, sit with him on the bus and have a chat to him could not understand a single word the bloke was the bloke was saying so yeah you, you say that but in england it can be pretty tough with the old language as well yeah did you invite anybody to come sit in your dick <laughs> i didn't have one mate but yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just to explain, we always uh, tick the mic. I think I remember Brendan how he says deck. Um, because, but uh, particularly my wife, she, she I think she's still <laughs> got the, she's she's got better with the Kiwi twang. It's but. epic whenever you guys talk about <laughs> dicks. <laughs> well, we are building a house right now, so there has been a lot of discussion on, on the on the decks. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So, um, whenever you moved to England, then your recent career, you were still. Um, you're always single seater, but then there were some years um, before you went to, to the World Endurance. So after you won the Formula Renault Championship, whenever you were based in mainland Europe, um, what was your career path then whenever you were racing in the UK? So I did British Formula 3, um, which I would say went well in some respects. Like I think I won the most races of the season, made some really stupid mistakes and ended up third in, in the championship. Um, and what followed that was what I'd say was, was a really difficult time in my career. Um, so the next year, uh, I went to the European Formula 3 Championship, as well as uh, being thrown into the uh, Renault World Series, uh, World Series by Renault. So it was a Renault uh, 3.5 litre. Anyway, this was, so this was going to 2009. So I had a pretty good year in British Formula 3. Uh, you know, won a lot of races, but made a lot of silly mistakes. Went to the next year, and I was also moved into the role of being a Formula One reserve driver. So I was now in a situation where I think I should mention that I, I tested a Formula One car for the first time as well, which was a big milestone in my career. That was at the end of two thousand eight, when Mark Webber broke his broke his leg. He's now a good buddy of mine. But yeah, what what I wanted to say was yeah, in this next year, I had no control over what I was racing. Red Bull decided everything. So I was thrown into Formula 3 European, another championship called Renault 3.5, and I was going to every single Formula 1 race as the reserve driver, which basically meant I was standing around... All weekend? Uh, all weekend. Um, wow. I was going to say drinking coffees, but it was more Red Bulls at that time, <laughs> um, waiting for someone to, to break a leg. But I, I just was completely burnt out, and it was a, it was a real downward spiral. Um, I think, you know, in hindsight, it would have been better sticking to one one championship um, and as a as a 19 year old I just I just got burnt out and I, and I really stopped enjoying it um, I even even loathed loathed it you know which which is sad to say because it's it's some kid's dream right to be a racing driver but the pressure um, the the downward spiral of, of bad results being constantly tired and and just not having everything figured out it, it was this really dark downward spiral and, and it was yeah was not happy not performing well 
um, and it was a really yeah it was a really tough time for me actually and uh, the other point on top of that which which I think is what started it off was um, part way through that season um, I, even though I was a reserve driver at the time another driver got moved into Formula One who was kind of his name was Jaime Alguasari so we we competed against each other the year before um, we were kind of arch enemies at the time you know it, it, you know you know what I mean we were, yes. we were big big rivals you know and, and I was the reserve driver so in a way I was in line to go hop in the Formula 1 car next but I didn't have a good first few rounds an opportunity came up in Formula 1 he got the seat just because of those couple of rounds yep based and, on that. and as that, that was you know as you said timing. before you know that the timing sometimes you know you have two three bad races and all of a sudden you're not the flavour of the month and it broke me. Honestly, I, I'll never forget the phone call I had from Helmut Marco, who, who is, is uh, you know, effectively, he's deciding who's, who's hopping in the Formula 1 cars and for, for the Red Bull teams. And I remember he called me and, and you know, he, he, he can be categorised as a pretty tough guy, but I could see it was not easy for him to tell me as well that Jaime would be taking the seat. He, told, he wanted to tell me before it was announced in the news. And I'll never forget that sinking feeling in my stomach. And... I, I think at the time I wasn't equipped to know how to deal with that and that was kind of the start of this really downward spiral and, and I, I felt at the time like I'd missed my big opportunity you know I didn't see the bigger picture at that time I, I maybe didn't have the right no but uh, you think about it at that moment that yeah. was your world yeah, so at you that can moment, think yeah. past that because that, that was yeah. everything I didn't see the moment. big picture that I still had a potential big career beyond me it just felt like I'd missed the opportunity and it kind of felt like it was over in a way and and I didn't deal with it very well, I guess. You know, I, I, I wasn't able to, able to move past and the, the bad results came and in the end, uh, partway through the next season, I, I was dropped from the Red Bull program, which um, was another big moment in my career, actually, because I look back on it and it was it was actually like a relief because I was in this this dark place, you know, career-wise and, and not happy, not performing well and kind of knowing that I didn't deserve to be there because I wasn't performing. And when I was, um, you know, told I was, I was dropped from the program, it was almost like a release, relief of this pressure. And then all of a sudden, I was put in this this situation where, well, I need to take control of this for myself. I had to ask myself a lot of questions. Okay, what now? Do I, you know, I'm not going home. Like, you know, I, I had no no real options. And and you know, I I got out my phone book. I called every single person, every single contact that I had. I spoke to my, you know, my, my advisors in New Zealand, and, and uh, one of the, you know, one, one piece of advice that I had, which which I did do, and I think we still have the whiteboard, but, but it was to get go and get a whiteboard and write down every contact and, and just start brainstorming, and, and that's what I did, and and uh, you know I really, you know, grafted for the next the next months and, and got drives here and there, um, but I think it really changed me as a person as well because I I was able to take control things of things. For myself um, you know together with Sarah and that's kind of when you know I was still with Sarah but that's when we came a bit more of a, a partnership and a team and and um, I guess I learned how to deal with those things a bit better from, from then on in but kind of a long-winded way of explaining it but um, yeah I did go through this dark period but I think actually this you know getting dropped by Red Bull in a way at the time was it was a fresh start which yeah, it's funny how overnight all of a sudden I had a, a new outlook on life and, and it, all of a sudden from going from, okay, I'd, when am I going to get dropped? It was like, okay, how am I going to turn this around? Which which was what I probably needed. Yeah, what I can understand from that then is uh, you were probably with a junior program 
for too long it mm. sounds like and that somebody else was. is responsible for uh, yeah. your future whereas then the moment that you uh, had to take responsibility for it you kind of grabbed it with both I thrived hands. yeah I really yeah, and, and I really both. thrived and yeah. that, that's that's probably a nice feeling and then that's what um, got you back on on track then so uh, the next step after that was um, to join an Irish team wasn't it um, well yeah there was a bit in between that so I I remembered contacting a few other Formula One teams because I was um, I'd spent a few years developing the Red Bull Formula One car in the simulator so I contacted a few Formula One teams to see if there was a job available um, basically I needed some money to live so Sarah was working in a, in a restaurant in Milton Keynes and uh, you know we still had a very small amount of money left over from the shareholders that I mentioned so I started working for Mercedes in, in their Formula One project so I was doing I think around 50 days per year on their simulator um, I managed to, to put together a few races in single seater still so during that during the the twelve or the six months after I got dropped from Red Bull in 2010, I, I managed to put together a couple of races in GP2. I found I found found money here and there, and and I think it was yeah six months later. No, sorry, it was a year and a half later. Um, I, I did do another season in, in um, World Series by Renault. Sorry, mate, my memory is terrible. So I'm like, <laughs> if you if you could imagine how I'm like trying to flip through my brain now, like what year was that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Anyway, I, I spent a little bit more time in single seaters along my alongside my duties at, at Mercedes Formula One, um, but ultimately I realised and accepted that the the chance of Formula One was was more or less over, and uh, I started looking at endurance racing. Um, so you mentioned the Irish team. I will get there. So I, what I think I was very good at um, was asking the questions and asking for advice. So I specifically remember um, asking a good buddy of mine, Sebastian Buemi, who's another driver and who's actually my teammate now, which which is quite quite a you know funny how it turned out like that. And he he would just he had just signed for Toyota and LMP1 in endurance racing. So I chatted to him a lot about that, and he gave me the advice of trying to go to endurance. So I turned up at a test in Paul Ricard, which is just down the road from where we are now. I took my helmet, my race suit. And I think I had around three or four thousand euros cash, which, not a word of a lie, it was pretty much everything I had at the time. So I took basically all the money that I had. Um, I'd organised beforehand uh, with a team that I might be able to, to drive the car. So I was still negotiating at the track on the day. I was like, okay, here's the four thousand euros. I want to do twenty laps in the car, and I had one set of tyres. So I, basically, I, I had a reputation in single seaters. I was a known quantity, but moving to endurance racing as a young fella it's kind of a new world and, and you almost need to prove yourself again so it was official test I did 20 laps in the car and one new set of tyres and I basically just wanted to show my face to everyone in the paddock and I went up and down the pit lane I gave a business card to every single every single team owner and I met an Irish fella called Greg Murphy who, who had just started a, an, uh, an LMP2 team and um, he liked me so what he did, what he did and, and I ended up doing the, the full season with him and doing my very first Le Mans 24 hour which, which I absolutely fell in love with um, I don't know if we, we're probably going to have time to talk about that in, in terms of endurance racing but that was yeah the start of my endurance racing um, career but in a way I look back and I, I am quite proud of myself that I actually went to the track with, with some money and, and shook everyone's hand and took my business card because it was seriously daunting doing that like I remember how nervous I was to turn up to a track in that fashion and, and just you know 
that's pretty bash rough. everyone's door and um, but you know I found one guy that was prepared to put me in a car and and yeah I, I mean we haven't enough time to talk about it but there's so many moments in my career that I've realized you know the timing has just you know been lucky or I've met the, I've had the right help at the right you know met just, you know you know what it's like mate right place right time and and uh, I was also in a position that I, I started doing a bit of endurance racing and that was kind of the next step in my career now it's kind of like uh, when your back was against the wall that you uh, created opportunities instead of sitting by the phone and waiting for it to ring I definitely didn't wait for the phone to ring yeah I definitely that's a mistake that, that yeah. a lot of us work people do so yeah I'm good enough somebody's gonna realize that and call we're just a number you gotta go out and chase it yeah. so that's what you did and, and that's you've forgotten very quickly right I mean we all know people forget about you very quickly which is half the half the reason I had a stupid haircut for so so, so long for so much of my career um, I kind of realized that you know even if it looked stupid which it definitely did I look back at some photos I had this really long haircut and I got really stubborn about it and just decided not to cut it um, but part of the reason that I kept telling myself I was like well if I'm rememberable that's that's a good thing because you know so many of us aren't and well, know, even, if we're, even if people were making fun of me at least they remember me well, I did exactly the same uh, with a moustache just because... But I like um, your moustache, mate. It doesn't look stupid. Yeah, yeah, it can come back. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a bit like Marmite. Love her or hate it, but that was a big part of the reason too because yeah. we are just a number. So uh, if you don't stand out, then uh, it's easy to get forgotten about. And I like that, I think, um, because I was a shy kid growing up, so I liked the fact that I could hide away. But it kind of dawned on me at one stage whenever I would walk through the Birmingham NEC motorcycle show, walk through ECMA in Milan, and be able to kind of go incognito and realize this is kind of a problem <laughs> so I, I liked it personally that I was able to, to just stroll around and not be recognized and then it dawned on me this ain't good so just uh, I think it was when I was in my honeymoon with my wife Pippa I just like shaved off the rest of my beard and left a mustache and I was like yeah this is different <laughs> and that was that I and like so that. many people they disliked it and that made it even more funny because uh, how could anybody be riled up by the official hair that was on my face I'm the guy that's looking in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody's going to get Pippa annoyed, it was you every morning, mate. Yeah. Poor, poor Pippa really. had to. But the, the moustache will come back just because it gets under so many people's uh, skin. Yeah. It's, it's entertaining. It's funny. I, I, as I've said that to you about wanting to be memorable, I yeah, I actually don't want to be noticed in a crowd, which is which is funny. Like I say it now, and it, I don't know how I had the foresight to, to say I need to be memorable because I it's kind of my worst nightmare. Like I, I hate being noticed somewhere. Like I. The, the reason I became or dreamt about being a, a racing driver was definitely not for fame. Like, it's actually my, one of my worst nightmares. It's, I, I like to be a, a little bit in the background and, and you know, I, I do it because I love racing and I love the I love competing. I, I want to win. You know, we all, I mean, as athletes, we all have this, this drive within us to, to win and compete, but it definitely wasn't for fame. Right, I'd say it's down to the fact that, and the same in your sport like mine, we've usually always got a teammate, two rider team, two driver team. So there's a good chance that uh, your teammate would stand out because he would talk like you're you're not a guy you listen you're not somebody that's going to shut your mouth off so um, oh, if we're not able to <laughs> yeah but you know these guys that are loud mouth that just like the sound of their own voice they're not going to be forgotten easily whereas if you're not a guy that's just uh, talking for the sake of talking yeah then your appearance yeah. that's an easy way to get people's attention so that you're not forgotten about so yeah there's a method uh, behind the madness yeah you're right yeah. but uh, it's their own um <laughs> <laughs> let's see um, now, now you've uh, you've got your look now I've seen the old pictures of you with the it definitely the looks long a bit better a bit shorter it's, yeah. it's horrible looking back at it on photos but yeah anyway mine are particularly bad but we don't have to go there no it was pretty unique <laughs> so then uh, we'll get to the stage I talked about with Bradley we talked about it early on in episode one 
um, where do you define the moment where you became professional? Because like you said, you were you had four thousand uh, quid to your name. Yeah. Uh, whenever you went to Paul Ricard that day, so when after that did you finally put pen to paper and actually then get a monthly installment into your bank account to be paid to risk? Yeah, so it was about a year and a half later after uh, the story I told you at, at Paul Ricard with with the Irish team. Um, so I did two years or a year and a half in, in endurance racing and I was making it my big effort to be noticed by the manufacturers. So every time I hopped in the car, it didn't matter if it was testing, long runs, qualifying, I was, you know, giving, you know, giving, giving my, I wasn't treating it like endurance racing and, you know, in the old fashion, it was really qualifying laps every lap. Um, and the, so the next year, so 2013, I contacted uh, Porsche. I got some. Uh, I found a way of. I, I I asked some some friends, and anyway, I found the contact of uh, Andreas Seidel, who was uh, who was the boss at at, at Porsche and, and heading up the the MP1 project. It was a simple email, and I wasn't even respecting expecting an answer. And at the time, I it felt silly that that I was even sending an email because they had. They could basically take any driver in the world. They were they were coming back into endurance racing in the top tier in LMP1, and uh, I wasn't really convinced that they'd even consider me. But I sent a message to say I'd like to come and meet him, and and uh, I think I'm ready to do the job. And can you please have a look at what I've been doing this year? And I had a response to 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 come and meet him in uh, in, in Stuttgart. So I travelled there, and and to my amazement, that that run all the numbers and that analysed every single lap that I'd done over the last year and a half, and. And uh, yeah, I did a test. We talked further, and, and signing the contract with Porsche definitely felt like the start of my professional career. You know, signing with a manufacturer, being paid money to go and race, and, and have, having that responsibility as well. You know, that that was the other thing. You know, putting on a set of Porsche overalls at Le Mans and, and feeling that responsibility um, felt felt like a, a big step in the career. And, and yeah, definitely, that was that was. At the start of my professional career. Well, just to put that into perspective, that was uh, 10 years after you up and left uh, from home in New Zealand before yeah. you were on a professional contract. So A little bit less, but yeah. But that, takes, years, yeah. Uh, that gives a whole new meaning to, you know, really uh, slogging it out because uh, you see the movies, uh, they always uh, romanticise it where a pop star will yeah. go through the graft and all the rest, but I haven't seen a movie where a guy grafts for almost 10 years um moving from a country where they don't speak your language so far away from home moving to England for seven years and, uh, yeah, and then and things it, falling apart and then having to rebuild it again and it does make it a lot more satisfying and together with Sarah we do we do try and remind each other of, of where we've come from you know like there were really tough times living in the UK she was working at a restaurant earning 12,000 quid a year and, and and a lot of the money I was earning from at Mercedes or you know from some of the money I had left over from the shareholders. I mean, it it wasn't enough. You know, a lot of the time I was was forking out own money to go and do you know these testing racing, trying to get noticed. And the budgets that we you know eating out of the restaurant was a big luxury. So my point is, you know, we're in a much better situation now. But I think going through those tough times made me a a lot stronger. And and I don't really know where I'm going with this comment, but I, I think we definitely appreciate it more going through some tough times. Um, yeah I think uh, as tough as it was for your racing career uh, whenever you retire from racing that's going to have shaped you a lot better for what comes yeah, after racing yeah. for the real life and having had things easy because if you get these challenges then you you know how to overcome them you've already had uh, 
a few tough um, times in your career so you know how to deal with real life shit yeah and I've, I've found myself over time looking at negatives looking at tough times in a positive way and I probably didn't always do that but I learned over time that okay if, if you're in a bad situation if you've made a mistake if whatever the bad situation situation is you, you can actually look at that in a positive light okay what, what can you do better next time how 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 can you avoid that from happening? You know, it, even if it's a team mistake, what could you have done differently to to help them? Or whatever the bad situation, I, I like to think I, I look at it in a positive light now, which has been a big thing for me. And, and I, I think if you've had a, a perfect career with with no issues at all, you, you couldn't have. I think it just doesn't happen. You, you have to have those tough times to be able to work on them. But to also to, to be successful, you need to be able to to look at those tough times in a positive light and, and learn from them. Yeah. yeah, and it's important to, to work on things that are under your control rather than playing the blame game as a lot of guys do, that it's somebody else's fault. Yes. Yeah, sometimes it is, but there's still... Uh, Even if it is, there's probably something that you something, could have done. Yeah. yeah, there's always something that you can do differently. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's life. But, yeah, I remember when you first came here, so 2014, and... I think we uh, we'd went for dinner in a restaurant and then once we uh, stepped outside and you hopped into your Porsche and we were going wow look at this guy <laughs> down the Porsche and you were almost embarrassed because you were like I was I, embarrassed you, sh- you did say like you should have seen what I've been driving for the past seven years so you were here living in Monaco living the high life and people will see you on your Twitter or something wherever you know you're based in Monaco it was a company car for the record I didn't yeah to know no, exactly that, yeah. <laughs> that, you were driving for a Porsche that was your company car you were probably driving a heap of junk for um, seven years in the UK, but in that moment in 2014, that's when we first met, so you were worried that I was going to judge you. Yeah, you just came to Monaco, you're driving for Porsche on a big contract, your company car is a Porsche, you're living there the high life, and that's how quickly it changed from 2012 to 2014. It was a big swing, yeah, very quickly. Yeah. So that, that's, um, that's pretty cool when you see, and then... Uh, shortly after that time as well we'll just um, touch briefly then on the beginning of your professional <laughs> career because we did start cycling together quite a lot whenever you first moved here because we both like riding uh, push bikes and you had said to me at one stage um, maybe around 2015 say yeah you were you'd come to terms with the fact that your formula one opportunity had passed you, you said yeah i know it's not going to come but i'm okay with that i've kind of got over it so for me it was so cool then a year year and a half later whenever you got the formula one opportunity with toro rosso because the fact that you'd already went through that those tough times of losing that opportunity when the, the other driver was selected after just a couple of good races and then it took you a while to, to get get past that and then you had and so you'd almost have passed it and then this gift comes along i, I say gift but you'd earned it from winning world titles i was in lmp1 the timing was good too i mean the, the amount of things that had to fall into place for that to happen was unbelievable you know I think you know, at, at some point if I do write a book it, it would be hard to believe you know how all that came together but yeah it was it was crazy I, I did become from one driver I did um, yeah reach that was that was my dream as, as a kid um, and yeah it came at a time when no one expected it including myself which which was cool and uh, you know even if even if it was short-lived I've got a lot of yeah, very um, yeah, you special memories, you know, from from that season. And, and again, yeah, I learned a lot along the way. But not um, everybody gets to race in Formula One. No, so there's only the twenty finish. drivers on the grid. You know, I guess it's you know similar to MotoGP in that respect, or a lot of other sports where, well, no, it is different from other sports because, you know, I, I always look at tennis and I'm, I always really admire guys like Roger Federer who have to 
battle and you know if every every grand slam that you know that they're facing lower seeded young young bucks trying to knock them off but in formula one you know there's, there's really only 20 seats and there's plenty of drivers that maybe could have been there and given been given the opportunity but to get that opportunity is so difficult and yeah. and there's so many elements that have to come to play but yeah it was it was a strange time those few months leading up to my, my first uh, formula one race but, but yeah it was, it was uh, an incredible time in my life it was yeah yeah, it's a funny story, actually. I'm sure we've spoken about it. Uh, how much it meant to your wife Sarah whenever you finally told her the news that you were going to be in Formula One. Sorry, she was here with you, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she was sat where we are in the living room. Now we were watching a a movie, uh, the three of us with my wife Pippa, and you were traveling. I knew you were traveling back. I think through Heathrow at the time, and Sarah had been a bit strange all day. We could tell she just didn't want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of like, do you want to join us for dinner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, all right, do you want to watch a movie? So this is getting on. I think by the time the movie finished, it was 11 o'clock. And then Sarah went to the bathroom. And I think I, I just kind of checked my, my phone to see if anyone had texted her in the movie or whatever else. And again, because of Sarah's accent, accent she, she <laughs> burst out of the bathroom crying and came over to Pip. And what I understood what she'd said, not once, but twice, <laughs> was that Brendan's died. <laughs> I don't know. I think she'd said that Brendan's... Finn's going to be in Formula 1 she said it once and then maybe the second she, maybe time maybe she got he got the drive maybe that's what she said I don't know I wasn't here huh? but yeah you go that must be it because she said it a second time and I was like ah oh, what the hell Brendan's plane <laughs> I thought your plane had went down yeah. twice so I sat there for a good one minute letting Pip console Sarah <laughs> from the fact that you just went down the plane until then we finally got it out of her no no oh, you've got the Formula driver. 1 driver yeah. so I was like ah that went from just I complete think, devastation I mean I don't know I don't know if, if we'd told you at the time but we, we were keeping it pretty quiet and it was even amazing at that time there were no rumours that you know norm, normally in this sport there's always some rumours someone knows something but this came really out of the blue for everyone which was which was quite cool as well for, for us but um yeah, including you, by the sounds of it, because <laughs> well, you, you thought I died, mate. Yeah. <laughs> that's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, that was a that was a crazy moment. But no, that's been really uh, interesting. That's uh, it was so easy to speak with Bradley because I knew his career uh, the past fifteen years, and uh, it was just easy to um, just chew the fat. Uh, we we went through it pretty good there. I think I learned a lot about your career, uh, car racing driver. The next one's going to be uh, a cyclist. That's the way I want to structure this. Is because here in Monaco we've got motorbike riders, we've got um, car race, racing drivers. Am I being interviewed again, mate? Or what? Oh, you're not that good a cyclist. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so yeah, the next one will be a cyclist. So um, be pretty cool to to hear how they, they compare. But yeah, cool. yeah, the big part of the reason why I'm doing these podcasts is uh, for selfish reasons. I want to know this. I read books. I read a lot of autobiographies. Yeah. So I like uh, reading the journey um, to becoming professional. And it was never a perfect path. So. It's, you for being honest and uh, telling us mistakes along the way, things uh, that happened. And no, that was pretty cool. One day, you can use this podcast to write it down on paper and turn it into an autobiography. Yeah, cheers, mate. That was a pleasure. Right. Cheers for coming on, Brendan. That's episode two. That's a wrap.